Prestige listeners, it's Derek. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we are very grateful and uh, pleased to be joined once again by Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, to continue our series uh, on the uh, Israel-Palestine crisis conflict uh, based on Professor Khalidi's book, uh, The uh, Hundred Years' War on Palestine. We will uh, We have descriptions or uh, links to that in the show description. Uh, Professor Halliday, thank you so much for uh, joining us again. A pleasure as always. So let's start. I think we are right on the verge of the 1967 Six-Day War. Why don't we, to get people kind of back in the, uh, the swing of things and also to set the stage for what's about to come, let's talk uh, just in, in sort of broad terms about where things stand at this point. Um, one of the, we can talk about sort of the relationship between Israel and Palestinians in what will be the West Bank is now sort of part of Jordan. But one of the things you talk about in the book, for example, is the Israeli government diverting the Jordan River, waters mm-hmm. from the Jordan River to the center of the country, which uh, deprives people in that region of, of access to water. Uh, we can talk about the rise of Palestinian militancy. I think, you know, again, something you talk about in the book, there's sort of a competition uh, for influence in the Palestinian community between mm-hmm. uh, the PLO, let's say, and the Jordanian government. Why don't we start there? And then I want to get into the regional stuff, the, the Arab Cold War, but let's start with the, the situation uh, in Israel-Palestine. Well, the situation in the wake of the 1948 war is that um, the Jewish state that was mandated by the partition plan, the United Nations partition plan, has expanded to uh, 78% of the country. It was supposed to be 55%, according to the UN plan. And um, two small areas remain under Arab control. One is the West Bank, what we call the West Bank, uh, under Jordanian control. One is the Gaza Strip, under Egyptian military uh, occupation. Uh, Jordan annexes the West Bank and proclaims itself, instead of its former name, Transjordan, it proclaims itself the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And Jordan now has a population which is at least half Palestinian. The Palestinian national movement has been pretty much eliminated as a result of the 1948 war. And one of the important things that happens in the decade and a half that follow up leading up to the 1967 war, and one of the things that helps precipitate the 1967 war is the reemergence, if you want, of a Palestinian national movement um, led by militant groups like Fatah and the Popular Front and so forth, who are dedicated to reversing the results of the 1948 war. Returning Palestinian refugees who've been driven out of their homes, about 750,000 of them, to their homes. Um, and uh, the conflict that that creates between the Palestinians and different Arab states, which have great fear of Israel. They've been defeated, all of them, several of them, in the 1948 war. And then Egypt has been defeated by Israel in the 1956 war. And so they have a extremely healthy fear. Uh, of Israel. And the last thing they want is for the Palestinians to drag them into another conflict. And so that's the background, in some ways, to the Six-Day War. The Palestinians are now uh, living under multiple different jurisdictions. 
Uh, a number of them live in Israel as Israeli citizens, but under martial law, with their lands systematically taken away from them. That's to say, the people who remain, the Palestinians who managed to remain. A very large number live in the West Bank, another number live in, in the Gaza Strip under different administrations, and many others are refugees in Lebanon, Syria, uh, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, and so forth. So those are, 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 that's the macro context. Could you maybe just give a little bit of a description of the main power bases? What is the relationship within the Palestinian community between Gaza and the West Bank? Who are the main groups? What, who are the main characters that effectively we need to know? Right. I mean, one other macro issue that is worth mentioning is that the entire leadership, the entire leadership class that had dominated Palestinian politics before 1948 is swept away by the by the catastrophe. They lose their property, they lose their prestige, they've failed, they've been defeated. Some of them are incorporated into the Jordanian regime. And so an entirely new group of younger people of a different class basis, not members of this landed elite, not members of the urban uh, upper classes, um, begins to play a much more important role in politics. And the groups that I'm going to talk about are all of them led by these lower middle class, middle class, many cases professionals, people who are teachers or engineers, but people from a much more modest background than the elites that dominated uh, Palestinian politics and that failed in the 20s and 30s. And the main groups are, are as I, uh, the two that I mentioned, actually, Fatah, um, which is formed largely by people uh, from the Gaza Strip, um, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which is formed of people who are refugees from different parts of Palestine, um, but which forms mainly in Lebanon and in Kuwait, in the Gulf, and in other places. Actually, the, the Gulf and Lebanon and Egypt are the, are the, and, and, the, and, the, and the Gaza Strip are really the centers of political activity for Palestinians. Uh, Jordan, much less so, because of the, the, the very severe repression that the Jordanian regime, or I should say surveillance of the Jordanian regime, exercises over independent Palestinian political activity. More broadly, outside, if we get outside of uh, sort of Israel, Palestine, Jordan, uh, this is a period where uh, the Arab world is going through what is known as the Arab Cold War, which I think helps right. to explain Egypt's interest in being involved in Israel's conflicts with other Arab states, because Egypt is one of the, the two main players in this conflict and, and sees itself as sort of the natural leader of the Arab world. I don't want to, obviously we could do many episodes on the Arab Cold War. I don't want to do that, but if you could give people sort of a, sure. a, a brief description of what was going on and, and why it matters to, to talking about this. Right. Story. The Arab Cold War is a term generated by the late Malcolm Kerr to describe the rivalry between the conservative Arab regimes led by Saudi Arabia and the more nationalist radical Arab regimes led by Egypt. Uh, as you mentioned, Egypt is the is considers itself and is considered as the leader of the Arab world. And it, it broadcasts a vision of Arab unity and a vision of uh, of a stronger Arab world, able to face up to former occupiers like Britain and France, uh, but also to confront Israel. And, uh, I, I've actually written a great deal about this, and one of the things that I've, I've tried to argue is that, in fact. Egypt's policy was not driven by Arab nationalism. It was driven by realpolitik and nation-state nationalism and what was good for the regime and regime security. But that included leading the Arab radical coalition, um, which led it into conflicts. In Yemen, for example, starting in 1962 after the Yemeni revolution, Egypt 
supports the revolutionaries against the royalists who are supported by Saudi Arabia. And that becomes a complex and venomous conflict. Uh, it, it's, it's been described by some historians as Egypt's Vietnam. Um, and that's the background to the 67 war. The Egyptians have 60,000 troops and a large chunk of their air force and their navy engaged in supporting this conflict quite a ways away from Egypt. And the Arab Cold War is the background to all of this because the Palestinians, Palestinian militants who are, who are beginning attacks on Israel starting in the 60s and who are organizing all over the Arab world are trying to win over Arab public opinion to the idea that the, that the results of the 48 war can be reversed. Now, remember, we're in the 1960s. We're in the time when Maoism and, and Che Guevara's ideas and the writings of Franz Fanon are spread all over the world, and in the Middle East as well. And so the idea of people's war, of national liberation, of, of armed struggle are, are, are very widespread in this region at, at the time. And it is a region in which the Algerians have won their independence in 1962 as a result of armed struggle um, against the French uh, the colonial regime. So the Egyptians are trying to navigate a very complex situation where they're being pushed uh, by their radical allies, sometimes Palestinians, sometimes uh, others, the Syrians, for example, um, to do more for the Palestinians. Uh, and where their natural reluctance to get into a fight with the Israelis, who have whipped them twice, mind you, in 48 and 67, um, and their desire given that the people who run the Egyptian regime were all military officers to do this in a regular organized way, rather than allowing a bunch of ragged guerrillas to drag them into the conflict at the time of their choosing. Um, so the, the, these are some of the conflicts uh, that are the background, if you want, to the 67 war. Before we get into 67 itself, could we talk a little bit about the Israeli military vis-a-vis -vis the other militaries in the region? Mm -hmm. Because we were talking about that in the late 40s, that one of the reasons that the Israelis were able to succeed militarily is that they had this particular form of training. They knew all of these various things. Um, so I was just wondering if you we could maybe, what is the state? What, why was Israel able to to be so successful in the region for the first, you know, 20 years of its mm -hmm. existence with other, with the other powers there? Well, I mean, it, it depends on whose version of reality you accept. If you accept the Israeli version of reality, uh, they created themselves out of nothing and it's all due to you know, the genius of the generals and the, uh, the wonderful, and the, and the spirit of Israelis uh, defending their country and so on and so forth. And that's certainly part of it. I mean, they, they had a gifted bunch of generals. And it was, a, it was a country full of people highly motivated in the wake of the Holocaust, in the wake of the way in which Israel was created. However, if we want to talk about the military, really, um, it, was a, it was largely created in the model of the British counterinsurgency uh, doctrines that were imparted to the senior officers of the Palmach and the Haganah, the two major pre-state militias. Uh, by British officers as part of their effort to, to, to destroy the Palestinian revolt of the thir late 30s. They needed all the help they could get. The British almost lost control of many parts of the country in 37, 38. And so they mobilized um, these militias to fight alongside them and taught them British counterinsurgency techniques that had been honed since the Boer Wars on the you know, North Indian Northwestern frontier in, in colonial wars all over the world including a variety of particularly noxious tactics and strategies and approaches. Almost all of the senior commanders of the Israeli army come out of that background. Um, Moshe Dayan is trained by these, by these British officers. 
uh, Yigal Alon, a major a minister, uh, an important figure, former chief of staff of the Israeli army, is trained by these officers. Yitzhak Zadeh, the first chief of staff of the Israeli army, is trained by these British officers. Um, the British also create a Jewish brigade. Uh, so the, the, they have both this counterinsurgency training and they have officers who have served in regular military units during World War II. And so with this background, you have a, 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 at least a backbone to which you then have the motivation and the, and the genius of the individual officers and a lot of military support, uh, arms and so forth coming from outside. Israel fights the 67 and 56 wars with top of the line British and French equipment, which is superior, in fact, to the Soviet equipment that the Egyptians and the Syrians have at this time. So Israel's military edge comes from, first of all, this is a country with very high level manpower. Everybody's literate. Many people are you know, technically competent. Uh, as compared with the with Arab countries, which have very low literacy rates, very few people have mechanical accomplishments, and so on and so forth. And secondly, you have this this structure, which is partly inherited from the British and partly a result of you know Israeli genius, if you want. And you have superior weaponry being supplied um, in the cases of the in the case of the fifties and the sixties uh, by the French uh, and the British. So let's talk about the immediate preceding event. Uh, to the war, which is Egypt's decision to move into the Sinai. As you note, uh, the Israeli military has twice now in 48 and then in the Suez crisis in 56 shown itself to be vastly superior to the Egyptian military. There's no logical reason why the Egyptians would want to provoke another war with Israel. But they make mm -hmm. this move, they oust the peacekeepers, they move into the Sinai, which becomes the source of this, I believe you refer to it as a myth in the book, uh, this like legend, basically, this concocted story that Egypt is imminently about to attack, that all the Arab states really are imminently right. about to attack Israel, which turns out not to be the case, but is nevertheless sort of the conventional wisdom, sort of the, the trigger for what happens. Premier Levi Eshkol says Israel has no intention of attacking its Arab neighbors, calling for a mutual reduction of Arab-Israeli forces massed along the border. But taking no chances... Tank units go through battle maneuvers in the Negev Desert. Why? Why did the Egyptians go into the the Sinai and and you know take this step? Well, there are multiple reasons. The, the The first goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, which is the Arab Cold War. There's a new government in Syria as of February 1966, which is very militant, very supportive of the Palestinians, and which helps these various small Palestinian groups to launch attacks on Israel. It is headed by people who had served in many cases in Algeria with the FLN, the Front Liberation Nationale, in their war of independence. And they believe in these theories of long-term people's war, wars of liberation, and so on. And so the Syrian regime is, is hell-bent for provoking Israel. And Egypt is linked to Syria as its ally, this weak country with, with a very, very unstable regime and very weak military many regional enemies. They can't let the Syrians fail. It's, it, they, they have the same kind of uh, problem as they have with the Yemeni Republicans, the Republicans in Yemen, the people that they go in to support during the Yemeni civil war, um, are not able to stand or appear not able to stand on their own. So Egypt is supporting a war in Yemen, and at the same time is trying to both restrain the Syrians and not allow the Syrians to be clobbered and by the Israelis, who, you know, uh, don't attack the Palestinians directly. They what they what they tend to do is attack the host countries from which attacks, Palestinian attacks are launched. And so they're attacking, launching occasional attacks on Syria. The Syrians lose planes. The Syrians are humiliated. And Egypt, 
at a certain point seems to feel uh, that it's absolutely necessary to support its ally. Um, and so the Egyptians mobilize, uh, send the troops into Sinai. That's one aspect. The other aspect is an internal aspect, which um, there's research ongoing uh, by uh, uh, Egyptian historians, uh, which shows that rivalries within the Egyptian leadership between Abdel Hakim Amin, who's the commander of the armed forces, and President Nasser are a factor in this. Uh, Amin is doing things without consulting with the president. Uh, Amin is a boastful braggart who is not really very smart, it turns out. And uh, he's partly responsible for the provocative Egyptian moves. Um, the Egyptians think that they can use this to cut a deal. That, at least, is the way the Egyptian leadership uh, sees it. The Israelis, of course, see this in a different fashion. Uh, Egyptian army massing in Sinai means that you know they, they ha- they're closer to Israel's borders. Uh, and the Israelis also see this as an opportunity to knock off a regional rival, which is to say the Egyptians, to knock them off their perch, and to weaken Egypt, and to weaken other Arab countries, and also to occupy new territories. Um, Israeli historians who have written about this have said that when Israeli politicians tried to restrain the military, the military got very angry, the Israeli military, saying, no, we have to launch a preemptive strike. This is an opportunity not to be missed. Um, And that gets us again to this idea of Israel being an enormous danger. One of the things I show in the book is that it was the solid, stable estimation of the American intelligence services and of the American military that Israel would under no circumstances lose a war. The only question is, would it devastatingly defeat the Arabs, or would it simply defeat the Arabs? If they attacked first, which most analysts don't think they were going to do, um, Israel would have won handily. But with an Israeli preemptive strike, they can do what they ultimately did, was to wipe the Arab air forces off the face of the map, and then just have a very easy five, six day romp um, through uh, Sinai, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, Gaza Strip, and so forth. Can we view Nasser's decision to close the Straits of Tehran, which was something the Israelis had said would be a, a red Bella. line for them? Absolutely. Uh, Bella, yes. Um, can we view that in the same context as, as the rest of the buildup in Sinai? It seems to me, this of, of all of it, this was the most provocative thing that he did and the most inexplicable to me. Uh, I'm curious as I mean, to frankly, what your interpretation of it is. Frankly, I think it's all inexplicable. You're tied down in a war in Yemen. You have 60,000 troops there. Most of your air transport, some of your air force, much of your navy is busy uh, helping the Republicans against the Royalists. And you're not winning in Yemen. This is, a, this is a, uh, just a sinkhole where Egyptian resources and Egyptian troops are going and they're losing. The last thing you want to do is to get into confrontation with Israel. So the whole, the whole Egyptian, I, I would argue there are many errors involved here. The error of Yemen is one. The error of mobilizing and, and sending troops into the Sinai is two. Uh, the third, as you suggest, is to do things like removing United Nations observers who've been posted there since the 56 war and closing the straits, which are provocative and invite the Israelis to do something which looks justifiable. Egypt has acted in a belligerent manner. And so if, if Israel, even if Israel attacks, which it did, uh, even if Egypt wasn't going to attack, they have in effect handed the Israelis a, a pretext. Uh, on a silver platter. And some of this we now know uh, from Egyptian historians who are beginning to look into these things is a function of the rivalry between the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Hakim Ahmed, and, and the president. Um, it, it's, an ex- it's an extremely foolish set, set of moves to make. And as I, I, I'll go back and say this. Part of the explanation is this inter-Arab rivalry. 
uh, you claim to be the great defender of the Palestinians. What are you doing uh, when, the, when the Israelis threaten Syria? Uh, why are you not acting uh, in support of the Palestinians? And so Egypt is in this, is in this extremely difficult situation, uh, partly of their own making, uh, and they then make it much, much worse. So, Professor, I have a quick question because I'm interested in this as an international historian, diplomatic historian. If you were trying to construct a causal hierarchy of why Egypt acted as it did, it sounds like you're saying that domestic politics is actually the prime situation, that that there is this external security environment, there is this Arab Cold War, but really when it comes down to it, it's this domestic rivalry. And I just wanted to, to ask your opinion about that because that's mm-hmm. interesting to me as a theory because I'm basically I'm coming to conclude that so many wars are just driven like by domestic politics and so much less right. about security concerns. Curious what you think. Well, I, I think it's a combination of both. I, I think we didn't know as much as we know now about the Egyptian domestic situation. And I should say that the, the historians who are working on this, Khalid Bahmi, um, was just about to move from Cambridge where he had a chair uh, back to the United States. I forget where he's coming is the person who's published a little bit of what he's already discovered. And there are other Egyptian historians who have been working on this that show that the domestic element had much more importance than anybody realized. Um, I would still go back to the Arab Cold War, Malcolm Kerr thesis, and say that those domestic rivalries played out in a situation where Egypt's prestige in the region was at stake, and where Egyptian leaders felt that they absolutely had to do something uh, to support Syria and the Palestinians. Um, the Israelis were really fed up with the Syrians, and there's there's some evidence that Israel was going to administer a very sharp knock to the Syrians at, at the point that, that the Egyptians mobilized. Uh, and Egypt couldn't afford yet another humiliation of yet another of its radical nationalist Arab allies. So I think that both of these things are operating. I think also a bunch of misestimations of the international situation. The Egyptians don't realize the extent to which the United States is going to back whatever Israel does. Uh, the Egyptians are sending the vice president to New York, to, to Washington, I should say, uh, for high-level talks on this in the hope that the Americans will help them get out of the situation they've got them into the day that the Israelis attack. <laughs> so the Egyptians have, are, are, are making gross underestimates of what the Soviet Union, or I should say overestimates of what the Soviet Union might do to support them and are underestimating the degree to which the United States is already in bed with the Israelis. The Johnson administration basically gives Israel a green light. Israel sends Meir Amit, the, the head of the Mossad, to Washington. And he has these talks with President Johnson and, and Defense Secretary McNamara, where basically the Americans tell him to go ahead and do it. The Egyptians don't realize this. So I would say you have a, 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 a high-level failure of, of appreciation of the international situation, and you have the, the regional stuff, and then you have this terrible domestic um, set of issues. Why are the Americans so free with Israel here? I mean, when you go back to Suez, Eisenhower was pretty pissed off about what was happening. Right. So maybe could you give us a precis on what happens right. between 56 and 67 to transform that relationship? Right. Uh, and it is, in fact, transformed. It's transformed between the Eisenhower and the Johnson administrations. Uh, President Kennedy was much less favorable to it. He was, he was very pro-Israeli. Israel got its first weapons from the United States under the Kennedy presidency. Up to that point, all of their weapons had come from Britain and France from 48 on. The Americans and the Soviets supplied Israel in 48, but in the, in the intervening period, it was the British and the French. Kennedy starts sending them Hawk missiles, Skyhawk bombers, and so on. Um, Johnson is a different animal than John F. Kennedy or Dwight D. Eisenhower. Dwight D. Eisenhower was general in the armies, lived abroad for many years. He was a military man. He understood strategy. 
he he had no particular affection for Israel. The Republicans in those days were not very pro-Israel. Much of the support for Israel was in the Democratic Party in the 50s and the 60s. Um, and Kennedy also had served in the military. His father had been ambassador to Britain. Um, he was a worldly traveled. And he'd come to Palestine in the 30s. He wrote letters to his father that showed this man was really quite smart about Middle Eastern politics. So John F. Kennedy was an absolutely no fool where international relations are concerned uh, and where Palestine is concerned and Israel is concerned. Uh, Pro-Israeli, though, though he, certainly, he certainly was. Um, he also was irritated by the fact the Israelis had secretly created nuclear weapons. He was finding this out just before he was assassinated. Johnson is a different kettle of fish. Johnson is very close to big donors to the Democratic Party who are very pro-Israeli. Johnson knows nothing about the world. He's almost not traveled. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a man who's lived his life in the United States, in the U.S. Senate, uh, as, a, as a wheeler dealer uh, and, and an expert in domestic politics. He is, he is completely in the hands of his advisors, uh, which is not the case with Kennedy. Kennedy, over, we know from the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy overruled his advisors again and again and again. He knew what he wanted. He knew more than they did. And he told them, what, as president, this is what we're going to do. Uh, it, that was not the case for Johnson, certainly with domestic affairs, but it was the case to a very large extent with foreign affairs. And his advisors were very pro-Israeli, by and large. Um, his national security advisor, George Bundy, Walt Rostow, Eugene Rostow in the State Department, all of them. Uh, his, his very close friend, Ambassador Goldberg, he was then in the United Nations as UN ambassador, served as labor secretary. He later put him on the Supreme Court. Was a, all of these people were ardent Zionists, very strong supporters of Israel. Um, and those were his advisors on these issues. So, uh, uh, and Johnson was alienated by Arab nationalism and Abdel Nasser. Uh, one of his buddies, an oil man, had been shot down by the Egyptians accidentally over Saudi Arabia. I mean, he he really disliked Abdel Nasser. He he he, and he and he also was operating. Think about 1967. The United States is just getting deeper and deeper into the Vietnam War. In that situation, any ally, any country that says, you know, we're with you, we're going to stand with you. Um, and we're going to stand up against Soviet proxies at a time when the United States is failing to stand up against the Soviet proxy in Vietnam uh, is very alluring, very appealing. Everybody is, is obsessed in Washington in, 60, in the mid-60s uh, by the situation in, in Vietnam, where, where Johnson has just escalated as of 64, 65. Gulf of Tonkin, 64, the big troop uh, buildup in 65. So Vietnam is the prism through which everybody is seeing everything. And the Israelis come and say, we're going to knock these Soviet proxies out. Of, 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 of the ring. Uh, and everybody in Washington says yes. McNamara says yes. The, the, the president says yes. So it's a different world than the world of Eisenhower and Kennedy. Sorry. And what's really interesting to me as someone who studies mid-century intellectuals is that this is the first time really in JFK and then LBJ staying on, the meritocrats enter the administration in force. And unsurprisingly, a lot of them come from Jewish um, backgrounds. You know, Walt Rossa, these people are second and third generation Jews. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more to dig in, uh, dig into there, but I just wanted to highlight that there's a transformation in literally who is in the American state at this very right. moment. Um, and maybe right. we could talk at about that at the top levels, right. Yeah, at the very I mean, this top is levels. New. You're, you're absolutely right. This is new. Um, you had a few advisors to FDR, and, and several of these same people advised Kennedy, by the way. Um, but um, by and large, it was WASPs who were the, the people in the State Department and the military and so on, uh, up until this point. 
Yeah, and the Jews, the earlier generation of Jews, they're German Jews. They're not us, Juden. They're not parents who fled the kitchen at Pogrom. They're people who came in the exactly. 19th century. Very different, different sort of intra-communal um, issue. But th- that's a that's a story for another time. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than one. Uh. <laughs> So I don't I don't want to bog down in the, the details of this war, which, as you've alluded to, you know, the Israelis launch a preemptive attack to knock out the air forces of all these Arab states. And, and the war is I mean, it's six days. It's over for all intents and purposes in one, essentially, I, I think. after right. this, First uh, day, the air forces are, are knocked out. Um, but I, I do want to sort of, you know, maybe we could talk a, about before we get into what happens in the occupation and what happens in. Uh, you know, the West Bank and Gaza specifically. We could talk a little bit about the bigger picture in terms of the the course of the war and what you write about in the book, your own experience kind of following the international angle of this, the international diplomacy that went on. Can you just give people a sense of of how that proceeded? Right. Uh, Well, I mean, my dad worked for the United Nations. He was a member of the UN Secretariat, and he was in what was then called the Political and Security Council Affairs Division. Uh, and his job was to monitor and report on what was going on in the Security Council whenever it discussed the Middle East. He and a, a subgroup of the of Political and Security Council Affairs dealt with the Security Council's meetings, and his sub-subgroup dealt with the Middle East. So he was there every time they discussed the Middle East, which was about half the work of the Security Council from the 40s right to the, the into the 80s. So he was a busy man. And I, I therefore was privy at dinner every time my, my dad would come home to hearing what really was happening in the Security Council, what UN observers were reporting, and so on and so forth. And this from the 50s and 60s onwards, and not just in 67. And uh, I had finished, I think it was my first, 67 was my first year of college, and I was home uh, at the time of the June War. Uh, and so I would go to the office with my dad every morning and sit in on Security Council se- sessions in the visitor's gallery. In those days, security was not what it has become, and it was very easy to get into the UN. And I was just, I was going to the UN. I had gone to the United Nations School. I knew all the guards. I could just walk right in, and and I was able to sit in the visitors' gallery pretty much every every session of the Security Council. And I describe in the book the desperate attempt of the Soviet ambassador to obtain a ceasefire as the Israelis are advancing in the last day of the war uh, in Syria into Syria. Uh, in the Golan Heights, and uh, uh, they reached the top of the Golan Heights, and now they're, 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 they're advancing on the plain towards Damascus. The six-day Middle East war echoes along a second front, the diplomatic struggle at the United Nations Security Council. A series of emotionally charged meetings keeps delegates debating on nearly around-the-clock basis. And what became apparent, I found out later from my father, uh, was that when the Soviet ambassador asked for urgent, an urgent ceasefire resolution, another ceasefire resolution, uh, Ambassador Arthur Goldberg asks to, to, for, 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 for a recess. Uh, and I come out of the visitor's gallery to the, the corridor and I wait for my father to come out a little while after the session's over and say, what's going on here? Uh, how come the, the, the Security Council is not passing the ceasefire resolution stopping the war? He said, don't you understand, <laughs> is it, talking to a slightly, slightly backwards child, don't you understand the Americans are just giving the Israelis more time to advance in, towards Damascus. Uh, that's what's going on here. He doesn't need to consult with his government. He can pick up a phone and talk to the president anytime he wants to uh, He doesn't need to consult. This is just a ploy to enable the Israelis to, uh, to get more territory. 
uh, and to whip the Syrians more thoroughly. And in the book, I, I link what I actually saw and what I later on read in the, the, the transcripts of the meetings of the Security Council with documents, that, American documents that have since been revealed, and some Israeli and some Israeli accounts that have since been published of what was going on between the United States and Israel. And basically, my father was right. There was collusion between the United States and Israel from before the war starts, uh, right through the passage of UN Security Council Resolution 242 in November, uh, after uh, several months after the war. Just very quickly, because the Israel lobby has become such a hot topic in the last 20 years, it, it, was there a lot of lobbying efforts? Because I, I know a lot of recent scholarship has come out that this is kind of a transitional moment where almost evangelicals become more important in the 70s than Jewish lobbying right. groups who then reassert themselves in the 80s. But I was just curious, what is the domestic lobbying factor here? Is there one or is it really they're thinking in geopolitical terms and Johnson's like in the administration listening to his advisors? I think it's both. This is a president who is acutely aware of the fact that a lot of funding for the Democratic Party comes from big donors, many of whom are Jewish, many of whom are his personal friends, one of whom one of whom was allegedly his mistress. I mean, according to some accounts, a woman married to a very important donor. And she was in the White House on the night of June 5th, apparently, as a guest. She's a very important scientist, in fact. She's a, she's a major figure in, I think it's AIDS science. Uh, a very accomplished woman. And um, he, he's acutely aware of the domestic stuff as well as the, the international implications, the president. Uh, I describe in the, in the book my experience leaving Grand Central Station by the 42nd Street entrance to go to the UN. Uh, we lived in Westchester at the time. I came in on the New Haven Railroad, and I, I'm coming out of the building, and I see pe- people holding up bed sheets, a bed sheet, and other people throwing money into it. Uh, people in... The United States, who were connected to and believed in and, and, and supported Israel, sincerely believed that Israel was in danger of annihilation. Many Israelis did, too, by the way. So this was a widespread belief, which the media, uh, I have to say, expanded on and, and exaggerated, and such that the victory that Israel wins seems so miraculous. It wasn't miraculous. The U.S. military, they're going to whip them anyway. This is not miraculous. This is, you know, seven to one odds, uh, or whatever they, they calculated it was. But for people at the time, this was a big deal. And so for a president who's, who's acutely attuned to domestic considerations, a democratic president, this is a large part of his base. It's not the most important part of his base. He's a southern, he's a southern originally a southern senator. There's other parts of the base that don't care that much at this time about Israel. But parts of the base do care very much about Israel, um, including a lot of donors, including uh, you know, a, a lot of politicians in places like New York. Um, so I, I would say both are factors. I would, I would give the international more personally, I would give the international more weight. I think the people advising the president were thinking of the cold war, the Soviet union, Vietnam, uh, regional balance of power much more than they were thinking of, you know, votes in New York. So I, I want to kind of, um, this is a big question, but I think to kind of talk about the occupation, what happened? I mean, you could talk about this as a almost a second Nakba uh, yeah. the, in terms of the displacement and the um, upheaval that it caused uh, in the West Bank, in Gaza, and uh, in the Golan as well. But I think, you know, we're, we're focusing on uh, the West Bank and Gaza here. Right. It's a big question to kind of describe this and describe what happened. But I think I don't know any other way to ask it than to just, you know, ask you to kind of take us into that and, and sort of right. uh, 
help people understand what happened during this war and, and in the immediate aftermath. We can get into the effects of the the occupation next time, but but just the sort of the the impact on the Palestinians right. uh, in this conflict. Well, the first thing is to to to, to step back and realize that Israel is now taking over the rest of Palestine. Soldiers who had stopped to pray at the Wailing Wall were amongst those who sped on to occupy the West Bank of Jordan. Already they referred to this ancient territory as ex-Jordan, as if this were some new man-made state cut into shape overnight. And in so doing, it's, it's taking on a territory which has not been depopulated as the rest of Palestine had been in 1948. So during the Nakba, this idea of turning an Arab country into a Jewish state was realized through the expulsion of 750,000 people. So that in what would have been a Jewish state that would have had almost a half of its population Arab becomes an overwhelmingly majority Jewish state. With the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, suddenly Israel is ruling over a very large number of Arabs. The first thing that's done is they expel as many as they can. Large numbers of people in Jerusalem, many villages, many of the refugee camps in the Jordan River Valley are depopulated. People are booted out put in buses, sent out. Now, others are, are, are leave Gaza or forced to leave Gaza. And there are plans that Israel then, then immediately after the war, uh, tries to set in motion uh, to get other Gazans to leave. So that's the first impact. Uh, people are shocked again, as they had been in 48, by this victory, by Israel's victory. Secondly, uh, a, a large number of people are, are, are forced to leave, several hundred thousand. So you have 300,000 refugees, 750,000 refugees who were driven out in 48, and then you have a couple hundred thousand more, two, maybe 300,000 driven out in 1967. And finally, people are now under foreign military rule. Um, they may or may not have liked the Egyptians but or the Jordanians before 1967, but they spoke the same language. Uh, and in the case of Jordan, Palestinians were made Jordanian citizens and become an important part of the Jordanian economy, become an important part even of the Jordanian elite, not the military, not the, not the royal family, not the security services, but other parts of the Jordanian government are staffed by Palestinians. So this is a completely different situation. Israelis run everything after the occupation. And it's, it's a shock uh, for Palestinians. It's a shock for the entire Arab world. I mean, the defeat of 67 has the same kind of echo in the Arab world as the defeat of 19. And, and it's particularly acute, obviously, for the Palestinians themselves. Okay, to to maybe close out, why don't we talk a little bit about the immediate international reaction to the occupations, the occupation uh -huh. of East Jerusalem, Gaza, right. uh, the West Bank. I mean, we know that the United States, for example, is all but acknowledged these places as part of Israel. At this point, it just doesn't care anymore. Uh, but I'm curious, in the immediate aftermath of this sort of, you know, conquest, basically, of territory, was there any sort of international shock? Was there, you know, any kind of, like, uh, opposition? Was it viewed as a temporary, you know, okay, on a temporary basis, but we're not, uh, we can't countenance, countenance this on a permanent basis? What, what, how did the international community react to these, these seizures? Well, I mean, there are different reactions. The United States and Britain helped to craft a Security Council Resolution 242, which gives Israel a loophole so big you could drive a Mack truck through it, by talking about Israel's obligation to return territories occupied in 1967. Not all of the territories, territories, implying that Israel can keep some of them. And Israel takes that little loophole and expands it into what has become permanent control over all the territories 
at least the Palestinian territories uh, occupied in 1967, uh, as well as the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. The only bit that's returned in the peace treaty with Egypt is the occupied Sinai Peninsula. And that's one international reaction. It's basically to turn the page on 48, to say, we're not going to try and make Israel give back its gains in the 48 war. We're not going to try and make Israel return the refugees and give them back their property, all of which were positions that the United States had taken after 1948, upheld by the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations. What the Johnson administration does with 242 is to say, the past is past, Israel is Israel, it is as it is, and now the question is the occupied territories and peace between Israel and the Arab countries on a status quo basis, where some occupied territories are, are returned in exchange for peace between the Arab countries and Israel. 242 is accepted by Egypt and, and, and Jordan. In 1973, it's accepted by Syria. So basically, the Arab countries accept this sooner or some sooner or more quickly than others. Um, and so this whole thing of the Arab countries wanting to destroy Israel is in fact something that pays no attention to reality, which is that certainly Egypt and Jordan very soon after the 67 war, except that's it. We accept this new definition. Israel is there. We have to make peace with it sooner or later, one way or another. And hopefully we'll get back our territories occupied in 67. Egypt, in, in effect, does. In, in fact, does uh, in exchange for the peace treaty that signed in 79. Uh, Jordan never had East Bank Jordanian territories occupied, um, but they signed a peace treaty with Israel um, in the 1990s. Syria and, 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 and the Palestinians never uh, uh, have any, any, any benefit from, from 242. Uh, even, though, even though both the PLO much later and Syria in 73 accept 242. Um, but 242, as I say, has this huge loophole, which the Israeli-American definition is I I infinitely flexible. Keep as much as you want, but you, know, you give something back in exchange for a binding peace. The final question, Professor, could you just give a sense of what the occupation looks like on the ground? Are there troops all over? What does the border look like? And is there a difference between what's going on in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem? And then that'll be, we'll end on that. Yeah, there are differences, but I think it should be emphasized that between 67 and the early 2000s, the border between Israel and the occupied territories was much more porous than it has become in the last 20 years. People moved back and forth across it with great ease. Uh, Palestinian workers went to work in Israel. Uh, Israelis went to shop in the occupied territories. At the same time, there was a ferocious repression of any militants, any national activity. You couldn't fly a Palestinian flag. You couldn't sing a Palestinian ballad. You couldn't organized, you couldn't meet, you couldn't have a union, you couldn't have, you know, all kinds of restrictions enforced by a completely omnipotent, almost, security service, which reached its tentacles into every family. To get a permit, you needed to talk to them, and they'd try and turn you into a collaborator, and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, you have a relatively open occupation, but on the other hand, you have minute control of political activity, minute control uh, of, of people's movements, and so on and so forth. Unless they did what the Israeli military and the Israeli security services wanted. So that changes with the first Intifada in 1987. That changes even more uh, in, the two, in the 2000s. But, you know, I, when I was living in Jerusalem in the late 1990s, I could pick up my cousin's car near the Haram Sharif and I could drive to Ramallah in 20 minutes. I mean, it'd take you 20 minutes to get to the checkpoint, and then two hours to get, three hours, however many to get through now. You can't go to Ramallah unless you're. You have a, if you're Palestinian, I'm an, I'm an American citizen. 
I can, I can get through, but it takes hours anyway. Um, that wasn't the case before the building of the wall, before the closure of the West Bank, before Gaza is fenced off. You could t- get a car and drive right across Israel to Gaza. In the early 90s, I went with my cousin, we drove across, and you know, there was one Israeli guard sitting, tipping back on his chair. He just waves you through. Uh, there was no fence around Gaza. There was nothing. Gaza workers went to work in Israel and, 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 and uh, so on. So uh, the occupation has changed in its nature, obviously, over time. The Palestinian militants has continued, and that is, I mean, every occupied people resists its occupier, and that in turn provokes repression. So this has got, there's been a cycle initiated by the occupier. The violence is the violence of occupation. The violence is the denial of people's human rights, civil rights, political rights. That's the, the real violence. That's the basic violence. To talk about the violence of the occupied is obscene if you don't understand that they're occupied and what that means in terms of absolute lack of control over any important decision in your life. Can I build? No, they won't let you. Can I go? No, if you do this and that, they won't let you. Can I import? No. Can I export? No. Can I use Ben-Gurion Airport? No. And so on and so forth. I mean, every important decision in your life is controlled by a foreign power through intelligence services and, you know, a sergeant at a checkpoint, a kid, an 18, 19-year-old Israeli reservist or draftee who will tell you, a 75-year-old man, you can't go here, go. And if you don't go, I'll hit you. And if I, I hit you, nobody's ever going to prosecute me for it. So, or even worse, shoot. So that everyday violence, even in the absence of normal activity, the violence of control by another is something that's there in a glove at the beginning. But the fist comes out more and more as more as there's more and more resistance. Uh, the, uh, the, the Intifada of 1987 shocks the Israelis. They thought they had a benign occupation. The Palestinians had accepted them. Well, clearly they had. Things get more violent in 2000, the second Intifada in 2000. Um, and we see the situation obviously hasn't improved since. In fact, it's gotten much, much worse in terms of the levels of violence. You have it since the 2000s, you've had Israel actually bombing Palestinian territories. They didn't do that. Uh, for the first, whatever it is, 67 to, to, to 2000, 2001, 2002. Rashid Khalidi, Columbia University, the book, again, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. If you haven't already picked it up, uh, go do that, please. Uh, thank you again, Professor. Uh, we look forward to having you back to, to continue the conversation. I look forward to another episode myself. Thanks so much.